name is Ryan Rowland, and I've been going to NBC for my whole life. Today I will be reading Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. You go ahead, Missy. Whoa, seated. That's what happens when I start messing with, I was back there going, do I have to turn this on? What did I do? Uh, anyway, I always kind of, me and electronics uh, always have a weird relationship. Uh, how awesome is that? Ryan, thank you. I appreciate that, man. I love seeing our kids. In fact, I was going to tell you if you're here today and, and that's something you would like to do is sometime read uh, out here at the Central Hub, just go out there and let them know. I don't know who's working Central Hub today, but I'm sorry. I probably should have given you more warning of that. But if you do, just go out there and tell them and give them a name because sometimes from week to week, I'm always trying to find people or whatever. And it'd just be nice if we kind of knew and could go to a list and, and here we are. So uh, if you're interested in doing that like Ryan, we'd, we would love it. Um, if you've listened to the songs today, you probably realize the, what our subject's going to be. It's uh, about grace. I praise team was very gracious towards me this week because I kept going, hey, what about this song? What about this song? Because there's so many songs about grace. Um, today is, uh, uh, is special to me in the sense anytime we talk about grace. Uh, while I came to Christ as a young person in my journey and my walk with God, there have been several stages and I've shared in the past, even pastoring at one time and uh, reading, you know, preaching through Second Peter 3.18 uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I stood there and waxed eloquently. Many of you heard this before. Uh, waxed eloquently on grace and had no clue about the power of grace in my walk with God. I knew I was saved, but I did not understand the power of grace. And actually, I, for a time, got out of ministry, uh, began a quest of really praying and asking God about what is, what is grace? What does it mean to my life? What's the power of grace? And on and on. And uh, probably spent about 10 years pursuing that in my life. And it just transformed my whole walk with God. Uh, when I tell you that in the midst of chaos, I know peace. Uh, in the midst of tragedy, I know his joy. In the midst of, of, of heartache, I know his comfort. And it's only through his grace. And so this morning's a little bit of that. Uh, we're going to continue our series. I know I've kind of last few weeks, uh, Greg shared last week, there was a week I was sick. We had a VBS, so it's kind of been chopped up. So let me put that slide up. We're still going through the four, five solas, where really the uh, sola is, a, uh, is the word literally means to alone or only. Uh, this came out of the Reformation. Uh, all of these deal with the gospel. We've, we've looked at scripture alone. That the scripture is our highest and final authority. It is the scriptures by which we know truth. It is the scriptures that point to Jesus, that we understand who Jesus is and the truth about Jesus. Uh, Christ alone. There is no other one by which you shall be saved. There's nobody else. There's no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it was the passage that... Uh, God used and his Holy Spirit moved and gripped my heart that I came to Christ when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one cometh to the Father by, by me. And that is a truth that we hold at Mansfield Bible Truth, Christ alone. Today we're going to be looking at grace alone. Uh, grace came because of Jesus. Jesus, when he came, he brought grace. And, and when we looked at Christ alone, I said, Christ is kind of the linchpin. If you take Christ out of the equation, all of this falls. 
It's the person of Christ. I don't stand here today because of anything I attained. I don't have a piece of paper on the wall that says, oh, I got this theology or I got that. I don't, I don't have any of that. All I have is Jesus. And that's all you have as well. It's Christ alone. He's the key to what we hold. And faith alone and then to the glory of God alone. And a lot of people, when I always say, you know, the major theme of the scriptures, I know a lot of people will say, oh, it's redemption. Or all these different things. I think it's the glory of God. Everything that he did points to his glory and sending his son and the work of his son is demonstration of his glory. And we'll see that in that last week. In the process of doing this, what we've been doing, whether you realize it or not, in the area of theology, we have been kind of establishing some flags about Mansfield Bible Church, about what we hold in regards to the, to the word of God, to the scriptures, what we hold to Christ, and today what we hold in regards to grace. This is important for us to understand. Not to say that we are ready to battle with everybody who doesn't agree with us, but to understand who we are. What do I say all the time? The dear people of God, you need to know who you are. You got to remember who you are in Christ, right? And so it's really important for us to know these things, to embrace these things, to hold truth. There have been many times over the years in ministry where I will have a conversation with someone and they'll go, you know, Greg, I just don't see the scriptures the way you do. And I will look at them and say, I love you. I care about you. I deeply care about you, but I'm sorry we're not changing because this is what we hold. This is who we are. And it's important for us to know who we are as a church. So when we look at the scriptures, we hold to the scriptures alone. When we look at Christ, we see Christ alone. And today we're going to be looking at grace because it's grace alone. It's based on grace. It is nothing we've done, attained, or earned, as we'll see as we go through today. One of the characters out of the Great Reformation that um, always caught my eye was a man by the name of Martin Luther. I've quoted him a few times. Today I'm going to spend a little bit more time on him just because I think he exemplified the struggle of humanity trying to come to a place whereby it finds favor with God and, and, the, and the total inadequacy of being able to do that, that it's totally impossible. When Luther was 21 years old, he was walking to the university and it was a violent storm that came up and a lightning bolt smashed Luther to the ground. In that moment, he was absolutely terrified, which I could totally relate to. I Probably if a lightning bolt struck me to the ground, I'd be terrified too. And he exclaimed, St. Anne, save me, help me. If you do, I'll be a monk. And Martin Luther, many people make promises like that, and then afterwards don't follow through with their promises, but Martin Luther did. He became a monk, and he, as a result, he kept that promise. It was a promise he made out of tremendous fear of death and standing before a righteous God. So began Martin Luther's quest for merit with God through his life as a monk. He began to pursue uh, many things to try to find a way in which he would have favor with God. I think in some ways, Luther loved being a monk because how hard he worked to please God. But his deepest fear was death and then having to stand before a righteous God because he knew that he could never do enough to satisfy a righteous and holy God and he knew that there was judgment to be faced. So becoming a monk, Luther's plan was to somehow in some way to become more attractive to God, to try to earn God's favor 
in the process of becoming more attractive. In fact, I think that's that phrase to earn favor with God is an important phrase in understanding because we often think that way, don't we? We often think well, in our attempts at religion and the way that we present ourselves and the way we put up the facades of righteousness or in the way that we go about in our efforts and our work and, and our good deeds that somehow God looks at us differently and somehow we find favor in the midst of doing those things. I remember as a kid in the church, well, I was a little older, but in the church where I was at, I mean, the, how many times the pastor would say, talk about, you know, Tamara over here, every time the door opens, she's at the church, right? So everyone, ooh, God loves her, right? God loves her anyway, but, you know, <laughs> sorry. And the picture is that whatever we think that we try to do to make ourselves more attractive to God somehow gains favor. And let me say something right here. That is a false gospel. That is not truth that the scriptures teach. So after Luther at some point, and we're going to talk a little more about Luther, but it was interesting that when he understood the gospel and he believed, he would say this to people who tried to find favor to God. He said, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not attractive. They are not loved because they are attractive. Let me say that again. Sinners are attracted, attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. You as a sinner, <laughs> hang on today. You guys are going to have a little bit of stuff to choke down. But you as a sinner are attractive and radiant because of God's love on you. God doesn't love you because you somehow made yourself attractive. You see the difference? It's a really important thing that we're gonna have to distinguish as we go through the day because God's love on a sinner is what makes them radiant. It's not that they are attractive because of what they've done, but this is totally opposite of our culture. Our culture says the more beautiful you are, the more smart you are, the more you present or even brand yourself your identity and your beauty is in yourself. The more you can appeal to others, then you are loved because you are found attractive. That is not the gospel. That is not the way that God's children should live. We live in his grace and we live in his mercy. We live in the righteousness of Christ and our identity is in him, but not in these things to try to make us more attractive. And Luther, he tried to make himself attractive before God. He would leave early, every morning, and very early in the morning, his little room, and he would make his way to the chapel, and he'd start his morning prayers in the middle of the night, then 6 a.m., then 9 a.m., then 12 p.m., and so on and so on. His quest to try and please God, he would often take no bread or water for three days at a time, somehow trying to destroy demonstrate to God his heart to know him, to please him, that somehow that by doing these things, God would have favor on him. He quite often would sleep in the cold without blankets, freezing himself, hoping to find favor. Isn't that what religion does, isn't it? Think about it. Isn't that what religion does? I mean, to me, that sounds so, totally ridiculous, right? that somehow me laying out in the cold and freezing to death is gonna make me look right before God and he's gonna find favor. 
But when we're trying to gain favor of God by what we do, we become pursuant about things that doesn't always make logic. We find ourselves doing things some way that God would be happy with us because of what we did instead of understanding that God loves us and that alone is enough. He, he would, his drive and confessions was hilarious to me. He would exhaust his confessors taking up to six hours at a time to categorize his most recent sins. Think about that. I was like, man, six hours. I probably need more than that. (laughs) Thank God he forgives us, doesn't he? This is the problem we have with religion. The more that we do, the more trouble we become. Because it's never enough. It was here that he, Luther, began to realize that all of his good conduct and his religious behavior was only disguising the problem, not solving it. That all of his attempts to be good, as all of his attempts of his behavior weren't solving the issue, it was disguising it. Because he thought just more efforts, a little bit more, a little bit more righteous, maybe I'll squeeze in. It's never enough, you can never add up. Luther said, though I live as a monk without reproach, I felt I was, as I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes. I secretly blasphemed God and was angry with him. Have you ever had a relenting boss who doesn't listen? You can never do what's right, no matter how hard you feel like you try. How would he not feel the same way towards a a God that he read about who was loving, but he felt no love? Because he knew he could never attain, he could never come to that place whereby it was enough. It was not long after this season that Luther discovered the gospel of grace. That he discovered that by grace alone, by grace you have been saved. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As we read, I want you to notice something. In this chapter, this great chapter, chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 10, 1 through 8, 1 through, I mean, it's the whole, this this section is about the gospel. I want you to notice something where he begins in verse 1. He kind of starts with death. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Listen as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. He's talking to believers. So he's looking back saying, you once walked this way. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion or the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now just stop right there. These are... These are words today that we do everything we can to cancel them out of our lives, don't we? We don't want to talk about these words. We don't want to talk about the the condition in which we found ourselves without Christ. And if we don't know Christ, you definitely don't want to talk about these things. Because when we talk about them, it, it identifies 
our condition where we're at without Christ. When you talk about dead and your trespasses and sins, there's much that can be discussed there. I've written papers and been lots of discussion, but I just want to simply talk about death being separation. Here you are separated from God. Because of your sins, you have been separated from him. And therefore, he declares you dead. In fact, I believe in verse 2, he starts talking, if you will, we're like, like we're spiritual zombies walking around. Because you know what? Without Jesus, there is no life. Choke that one down for a second. Let me, let me let you think on that. Remember when Jesus came to Martha and he's going to bring Lazarus out of the tomb and she's like, oh, he stinks. What has Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. And I love the situation where he's saying to Martha, he's saying to her right there, right then, right now, the, right in front of you is the resurrection and the life. There is no life without Jesus. We have to understand that in him is life. I have life because of my identification in Christ Jesus through faith. I trust in the work that he's done for me. I rest in that work and I stand in the righteousness of Jesus and that is my identity. He is my life. Without that, there is no life. I would be separated from God. I would still be in my sin without any hope in a path of condemnation and judgment. We cannot ignore that truth. In a culture that I know does not want to hear that, we must understand it. If we are gonna understand the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty and the glory of the gospel, we have to understand that it starts right here to understand that we've been dead in our trespasses and sins and we've been separated from God. And he goes on from there. And like I said, in verse two, he starts calling us like spiritual zombies walking around. I don't know why we live in a world that it thinks it's so spiritual right now when it is spiritually dead. Because life is in Christ. And somehow we have, we, have, we have gotten to a place of arrogance that we think we understand more about spirituality than God himself who breathed into the nostrils of humanity life. We have forgotten our, we have forgotten our creator as a culture we have forgotten the condition that we are in and instead of embracing and understanding our condition and running into the arms of God to receive the forgiveness and the righteousness that he offers through Christ, we tried to cancel him out. We tried to push sin aside as if it's nothing and even though it's the problem of humanity. Humanity does not fix itself. The more that we try to pursue and think somehow within us is the answer, the more and more we go down the wrong path. We continue to be angry. We continue to have wars. We continue to see uh, hatred and division. And God forbid it's in the church. That's a whole nother sermon. We at one time were those people who followed the course of this, uh, this world. We followed the prince of the power of air. Who is that? He's our adversary. He wants to devour you. He doesn't want you to understand the blessings of God and the grace of God. He doesn't want you to understand the good news. 
It's our adversary, Satan. He seeks to destroy. And we were once walking in this world because we were dead in our sins. And it only gets worse if you look at verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is a popular movement within evangelicalism that is trying to do everything it can to remove the wrath of God. And it is destroying. No, it's not, because God's gospel and his truth is always able to stand, right? But it is deceiving people from embracing a false gospel. And I'm seeing it happen over and over, and I'm seeing people go down this line, moving further and further away from God, not closer to him. We need to be aware aware of the reality of the condition of our sins, that there is consequences. And the beauty of this study and the beauty of these five alones is that it is an example of the gospel and it addresses humanity's greatest problems or problem, that we are dead in our sin, that our sin was rejecting a holy God. Our sin rebelled and we rightly deserve to be punished because of our rejection before God. It's never fun to talk this, is it? I always hate it when one of my children was in trouble, right? You know, you had to address something. It was even worse when I was managing restaurants. Had to go tell somebody how they were not doing their job right. Because we don't want, we want to talk about the good. But the reality is if we don't understand what we've been saved from, We don't understand what God has saved us to. We have to understand what we've been saved from. Just as Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebelled against God. They went in their own way. They sought their own desires of the flesh and they were banished from the garden and were no different. The greatest problem of humanity is that we're dead in our sins and we're facing the judgment of God. Think about that. Think about the eternal ramification of that. And we have to address the questions. If we're going to address the issue of humanity, we have to address the question, how are we saved from sin? How do we escape the wrath of God that's coming upon those who reject him? That's why the gospel is so powerful. That's why the message of God's grace is so amazing. That's why it's like a flood of water, just the grace of God and the mercy of God and the the love of God that is just being poured on those. And the identity that we have is not in what we do, but the fact that God has poured on us his love and his mercy and his grace. And he calls us his own. That's why it's so powerful. Because if we don't address it, we either dismiss God and sin as if it's not even important. I can walk in here and say, this is a concrete floor, all I want. But it's not a concrete floor. Well, maybe under the rug. (laughs) Ha ha, that's what we do, don't we? And we deceive ourselves in our own arrogance arrogance, because we think we're so smart. And we dismiss him. Where we do the other, and we, we are constantly trying to improve ourselves. We're, we're trying to make ourselves look better and go, gee, I hope God is happy with me today. Where did we learn that? In the false doctrine and teaching. Luther had religion down to a T. He said this. I have a slide on this too. Luther said, it is true I was a good monk, 
and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through the monastic uh, discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. For if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what with visuals, prayers, readings, and other works. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty, but I, was always, I always doubted and said, did I, did I do that right? You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it, more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled I became. That's what religion does. When we're trying to address the greatest need of humanity through our own means and our own ways. Luther understood the condition of humanity, but he did not understand the good news at this point. Let me say this too. Let me, let me just be clear. There are a lot of churches that are gonna tell you, come on, come follow Jesus. It's a great life. It's wonderful. Man, come, come follow Jesus. It's gonna be better. It's so wonderful. Man, God's gonna give you all this stuff. You can expect all these other things. Come on, come re- receive Jesus and you'll be so much happier. Uh, dear people of God, that is not the gospel. You cannot understand the gospel and not understand why Jesus had to go to the cross. If you come here and you accept Christ because, because you just think it's a good thing to add, you know, it's kind of like you're at your house and you go, you know what, I think of a porch out there on the back, that would really make our house nice and we would really enjoy that. And then you look over here and you go, you know, Jesus, I kind of like him. I think I'll kind of add him to my life. I could probably learn a few things from him. That is a false gospel. If you don't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross, and today there's a movement in our evangelicalism that is trying to destroy this thought, that if you don't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross, you're not going to understand the gospel of grace. You must know that there are consequences for our sin. That's, that's verses 1 through 3. There's consequences for our sin that put Jesus on the cross. There must be conviction of our sin that leads to genuine conversion. If you're not convicted of your sin, how are you going to receive the forgiveness of God? You don't think you need it. Now you're just going to add Jesus because I think it's going to make my life so much better. I just have Jesus and I'll go up there to that that church and everything will be wonderful and, and all that. That is a lie. And our adversary wants you to believe that. The adversary, our adversary doesn't want you to confront the reality of what you've been saved from. Because I'll tell you this, after those years of, of pursuing grace, the one thing I learned is the more I saw the wickedness of my own heart, the more I saw the grace of my God. And the power of my God to change me. I am not an easy person to change. And God is able So the bad news of verses one through three really sets up the good news of verse four and following. Look what he says in verse four. My two of my favorite words in all of scripture, if you've been around me, you've heard this before. What is it? What's the first two words? But God, isn't that amazing? Here we were, we're in this path, we're in this condition, and you know what God did? He intervened. He intervened. 
He didn't leave us there. We were dead in our sin, but God, can anything sweeter than that? Isn't it so much more sweeter when you understand what you've been delivered from and you understand what God has done to deliver us to? This is not a social club. Man, I, I, I don't ever want to be okay with you just kind of floating along in your Christianity. Throw that out the window, man. Throw it out the window. It gets you nothing. Look at your heart. Break your heart and give it to God. Surrender yourself to him because there is no hope the other way. We were following in our ways of this world, but God, we were children of wrath, but God, it is critical to understand this truth, to understand the gospel. And I also want us to understand something else. It sounds harsh, but it's the reality. God is not in a place where he must do anything. He owes us nothing in terms of grace and love and mercy. I know humanity, we like to talk about what is fair, right? That isn't fair. That isn't just. Hey, this isn't fair to me. We do this all the time. But you know what would really be fair? You know what would be fair? If God just left us in our sin. He didn't sin, we did. We're responsible for our own sin. We are. We chose to reject his holiness. We chose to seek after after the flesh and the mind of our own bodies and desires. Our sin put us in this place and God owes us absolutely nothing. And then you hear these words, but God, (laughs) but God, being rich in mercy, look what it says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see that? But God, because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his great love, it speaks of him intervening in our condition when we were lost and we were in bondage to sin and death. But God intervened. And when he intervened, he didn't bring judgment. He didn't bring condemnation. He brought love and grace and mercy. And he called us to himself. How powerful is that? But God, and here comes mercy. But God, here comes love. But God, here comes grace. Isn't that amazing? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me, huh? Hmm? Look what he goes on. He says in verse four, he says, um, but God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he didn't want us to forget where we came from, made us alive together with God. If you notice the the subject and the verb is but God, where God is the subject, the verb is made us alive. God made us alive. To him be the glory and the praise forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. To you, God, to you alone is the honor and the praise. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy in our lives. Amen. God did not leave us in our sin. He goes on, he says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Now stop here real quick. I don't know in your Bible, but in my Bible, when it says made us alive together with grace, there's a kind of a dash there. Did you notice that? 
And then it says, by grace you have been saved, and then a dash, and then it picks back up. If you took that little phrase out, by grace you have been saved, it would actually read better. By, made us together, alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? It's almost like the Holy Spirit guiding Paul, which is what he was doing as he was writing this. It's almost like he said, I don't want you to miss it. He, 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 God, in being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. By grace you have been saved. Don't miss it. It's all by grace. What amazing grace. If you have Jesus, you have grace. One of the great truths that struck my heart in those years of study and beginning to understand grace was the reality that you cannot have grace without Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no grace. In fact, in Titus 2.11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. In fact, one interpreter called this grace incarnate because it's making a reference to to Christ, that Christ came bringing grace. And that was so sweet to my ears. The fact that when you begin to talk about grace, you can't separate Jesus from grace. If you go back into chapter one, we're not gonna take time, but mark it in your Bibles. Look at verses five through eight. And over again, you see Jesus and you see grace in the kindness of his grace and the fullness of his grace that through Christ came grace. You cannot have grace without Jesus. There's nothing we can add to grace. There is nothing you can do. You have 0% contribution to grace. We add nothing to it. Amazing grace. And God forbid that we would take it for granted and yawn at it as old news. Some of you have been here and you've been believers a long time. Don't allow it to just become old news. It's marvelous and it's abundant. I like the theologian, James Boyce. He, um, he wrote down a whole bunch of phrases in the old hymns about grace and I wanted to share that this morning. I should have that on, the, on a slide as well. These are phrases used in the hymns themselves, such as, listen to this, abounding grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, boundless grace, fountain of grace, God of grace, marvelous grace, matchless grace, overflowing grace, pardoning grace, unfailing grace, immeasurable grace, wonderful grace, the word of grace, grace all sufficient and grace alone. Amen. I almost got a bunch of the hymns and just preached from them. I mean, their grace is all over them. It's all over them because those men knew and understood and wrote these hymns. He goes on in verse, in verse seven, he says, so that in the coming ages he might show, listen to it, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, where? In Christ Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. You see, we are saved by grace. Grace alone. But the second thing we need to understand is that grace cannot be earned. Look at verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Just stop right there. This is not your own doing. How clear is it? How clear is the scripture? Why are there so many people that are thinking that somehow They can make themselves attractive to God and find favor with God. Where do they get this? It's not from the Bible. 
It's a false system, a false gospel. I don't know. But the Bible says it clearly here. These aren't my words. These are the, this is the word of God. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. In case you didn't understand it, in case you didn't get it when he said it a minute ago, by grace you have been saved, in case you didn't catch it, he's making it very clear, it's not your own doing. And he doesn't stop there. In case you didn't understand, he goes on, it is a gift of God. It's a gift. You didn't earn it because you came through the door a certain amount of times. You didn't earn it because you've dropped a certain amount of money in the plate. You didn't earn it because you said enough prayers or you read through the Bible twice a year for the last 20 years. You didn't earn it. While those things are good things, they don't earn you grace. They are the result of the work of Christ in your life. Because of his grace, he moves me to know him more. And look what he goes on. He says, in case you didn't get it again, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. It's not your own doing. It's not the result of works. Why? So no one can boast. There's only one we boast in. It's Christ. Have nothing else. It's not of works. God is so clear. It is not us. It is grace. It is a gift. It is received through faith. We'll look at faith next week. There is only one who was perfect. There was only one full of grace who suffered and paid the payment of sin and death. And he is extending grace to you all. He's extending grace. Amazing grace, isn't it? Forgiveness, joy, peace. Jesus has set us free. Set us free from sin and death. My sin on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness on me. We call it the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made in the righteousness of God. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21. To be set free. That is the message that so many people need to hear today. Our culture needs that message. If they don't like to hear it, they're gonna throw their hands over their ears and go running down the street screaming. I'm being a little sarcastic. Please don't send me any emails. They're not going to respond, but they need to hear the message. It's the message that our co-workers need. It's the message our neighbors need. It's the message our friends need. It's the message our family needs. It is the message that the world needs today. To be set free from the bondage of sin and death. To quit trying to gain favor, but rather to trust in Jesus. And if that doesn't happen... At the end, you know what will happen? They will come before the Lord and the Lord will they'll say to the Lord, but Lord, we were at church every Sunday. Lord, we prayed. Lord, we gave. Lord, we fed the hungry. Lord, we did this. We did this in your name. We did that in your name. And the Lord says, away from me for I never knew you. Because if you don't know his son, you're not gonna know him. To know Christ is to know him. You see, God's grace transforms us so that God sees us in the righteousness of his son. Is that not amazing grace? Luther, describing this great exchange after knowing the gospel, he said this, and I believe I have a slide for that as well. 
He said, Christ is full of grace and life and its salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins and death and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is the bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? Isn't that amazing? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? You see, in the great exchange, it's not like Jesus came and he said, hey, Lingle, I kind of like this about you, but that I don't like. You're going to have to keep that. You know that anger issue you have, Lingo? Uh, I'm only going to take half of it. That's not what Jesus did. He came and he took it all. And he dealt with it on the cross. And you know what he did? He said, Lingo, guess what? I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to just lavish it on you. And the waves of mercy and the waves of his love and the waves of his grace How is that not a good message? I know we don't want to talk about our sins and our condition, but we have to understand the iniquities of our hearts to understand the fullness of his grace in our lives. Grace is the greatest gift that can be given to anyone and it can't be earned. I mentioned that I really like some of the old hymns. One of them was... um, Rock of Ages, I'm throw it up there. It's amazing how grace is woven through these songs. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It's the only safe place to be. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which float be of sin the double cure. What's he mean, double cure? He says it in the very next phrase. Save us, save from wrath and make me pure. Is that what he does? Is that what he did? He saved me from wrath and he gave me his righteousness and he made me to stand in his presence and his righteousness. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow for all a sin could not atone. What he's saying here is no matter how hard I worked, even on all of my zeal and my tears were flowing down, it's not enough to make atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Only Christ. We saw that last week. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly. Look what he's saying here. He's saying, I have nothing in my hand. I literally, I came naked, helpless, and, and foul. When you talk about the wickedness of our hearts, the scriptures describe it as, as filthy rags. You know, and you pull it up and it just crumbles and it's gross. I don't know my own heart and its wickedness. And Christ is changing it. So I come to him and he says there in the last phrase, wash me, Savior, or I die. And a lot of these hymns have kind of an eschological ending. And then it says, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. 
rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Grace is not earned. It is received, how? Simply by believing in the work that Jesus did, recognizing that which you've been saved from, confessing and receiving Christ into your life that he might set you free. John Newton was another one. Amazing story. He wrote the song Amazing Grace. I shared in the first hour uh, one of the most recorded hymns of all time or songs of all time, beating out the Beatles yesterday even. Thought that was pretty impressive. Isn't how, isn't that, I think God's grace is a lot more powerful than that song. And he wrote this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, now I see. He's talking about verses one through three. Wandering around in this world after the power, the power of the spirit of this world, seeking after my own pleasures of my flesh and my mind, desires of my mind, dead, separated from God. But now I'm found and now I see. Why? Because of his amazing grace. Was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. I love that phrase, always have, because it speaks to both sides of grace. People sometimes come to me and go, Greg, you're talking too much about grace. You're going to, you know, that just sets people free to go live however they want. And I always go, well, if they do that, they don't know grace. Because the more I understand grace, the more I hate sin. The more I understand God's grace, the more I understand why he hates sin and the destruction it does in the lives of his people and how it's destroyed humanity, how it's destroyed the home, how it destroys individuals how it keeps us from experiencing what God intended for us. Go back to the garden. He did not create a world for us to live in in sin. He wanted us to live in righteousness. It was we that rebelled. And by his grace and his mercy, he reaches out. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You know, as we close, and I I'm, could I'm, get excited and go another 30 minutes with you guys, but um, I've asked Alan and Ashley to kind of come up, and there's another song that I sing, Grace That Is Greater Than Our Sin. I always love that song. I remember many times working and having that, those words go through my mind as I was trying to understand grace and the power of grace in my life. And I want you just to kind of listen to sing, we're gonna stand and sing along. And I wanna ask you, we as a church, we're not real good at kind of sharing our feelings and all that, I don't know why we don't do that all the time. I'm not asking you to come up, but some of you need to pray. Some of you know you've been playing this religious game and it's time to embrace grace. Some of you might be here today and, and maybe you haven't heard grace this way before. Maybe you're thinking not church is all about do's and don'ts and somehow making God happy. And today is a day to embrace Christ and to receive his grace into your life. He's extended it to you. He's extended it, it's there. And today you need to do that. Maybe you need to look at your partner and just say, hey man, will you pray with me? Will you pray with me? Maybe after the service, after we sing this song, if you wanna come to the front and sit on the front, I'll pray with you. If others, you see people and you need to pray with them, that's fine. If nobody comes, that's fine. God's spirit, he's able to do as he pleases. 
without me. So let's sing, stand and let's sing. Marvelous Christ.